Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Good afternoon and welcome to Engage for Success Radio Show number 410, Five Keys to Winning the Battle for Talent. And we're today going to be talking about why employees are the number one differentiator in your business. I'm Jo Dodds, your host for today. I'm an engagement consultant working within the Engage for Success core team. The Engage for Success movement is an inclusive movement committed to the idea that there is a better way to work by releasing more of the capability and potential of people at work. We spread the word about employee engagement and shine a light on good practice, inspiring people and workplaces to thrive. And we're widely supported across the UK involving the public, private and third sectors. If you go to our website, engagesuccess.org, you can use the link at the bottom of the page to join our newsletter list and all our social media links are there too. So this week, I'm really pleased to say that my guest is actually here, which is good if you were listening to my last show. Um, and my guest today is Todd Palmer, who's CEO, coach and business therapist or biz therapist. So welcome, Todd. Thanks for joining me. Joe, it's great to be back. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, lovely. And we, I spoke to you on a different podcast, didn't I? So it's, uh, it's, we've got to switch our minds into a slightly different sphere today. <laughs> oh, well, I, th- I think I'm up for the challenge. <laughs> Excellent. So start by telling us uh, a bit about who you are and what you do. Well, I'm a retired CEO. I cashed out of my business about four or four and a half years ago. And since I retired, I, I've gone into the coaching space because I realized there's a huge gap as, as I was an entrepreneur and I was a CEO in what I knew versus what I didn't know. And there's a lot of coaches that I would run into that talked about processes and systems. And I feel that the best way to, to coach somebody to be coached is inside out leadership. So my firm Extraordinary Advisor specializes in that. Um, before I retired, my business was, I, I had one of the largest recruiting companies in America, specifically around skilled trades, labor talent for manufacturing and construction. And uh, mm-hmm. earlier this year, I wrote the uh, number one best-selling book, From Suck to Success, A Guide to Extraordinary Entrepreneurship. Ah, excellent. So great to have you here with all of that um, real life experience, if you like. You're not just a consultant <laughs> or just a coach. <laughs> oh, gosh. No, and the funny thing is I still, use, I still even use a coach. So I coach and I use a coach. Ah, very good, very good. And, you know, no disrespect to coaches out there. <laughs> um, I've, you know, it's, it's, we just find that when our listeners are, are, on the show, or are listening to the show, it's the, the sort of real life stories and the real life um situations that people describe that, that where they were the manager, they were the chief executive that, that really sort of hit home for people. So it's great to, to have people who've got sort of, you know, both of those things going on, if you like. Sure. So, so um, before we sort of dive in, I, I think it'd be interesting just to have a, a discussion about how things are now compared to how they were, because clearly once you had exited your business, the whole world went a bit mad, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, no, and, and I don't want to take credit for that either. So, yeah, yeah. Well, at least here, here in the. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, so we're you know in a very different place in in business now than we were four years ago, and clearly the last couple of years has really sort of changed things and sort of um, made more of a challenge of where we were heading already. Um, what, what's your sort of perspective on that? Well, from my perspective, at least here in the United States, uh, it's what companies need to understand it's a candidate-controlled marketplace. There are about mm-hmm. 7 million more jobs in America than there are people for them. And if you take yeah. a look at that number alone, that should, should, should draw your attention. Then you look at the unemployment rate according to the government. You know, uh, we are at full employment. Go one layer below that. If you look at the millennial number, 
millennial number of being unemployment numbers about 12% here in the United States. So if you've got your baby boomers and your Gen Xs leaving companies or transitioning out of your company and you're thinking, hey, millennials are my next pipeline of talent, they're not coming. And then you throw in the, mm-hmm. the final piece of the a number that's my favorite number. It's the labor participation rate here in the United States is at a 52-year low. So all those things combined to create the perfect storm for what we hear in, have in the United States is the, the great resignation, more jobs than we have people for them. And unfortunately, yeah. we've got a, a government that is you know, essentially in the eyes of some employers paying people to stay home. So it's really this perfect storm. So if you're a great candidate and you've got a lot of skill sets, there's plenty of jobs for you. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we, we've had over in the UK, I don't know how much it's been the same in, in the States as well. We've had people shifting uh, sectors and types of jobs during the pandemic because firstly they had to and then they chose to or certainly chose not to go back so you know we've had people leave you know hospitality and, and other types of industries where clearly they were closed for a period of time and they're not going back which is given um, big shortages and uh, you know we've we're right in the middle of a uh, a fuel crisis <laughs> driven by um, many things. I wouldn't sort of um, try and explain that too, uh, in too much detail because I don't ever really know what I'm talking about in such terms. However, you know, part of it is that we, we don't have enough lorry drivers in the country and that's having all sorts sure. of knock on effects. Um, and you can, you know, every lorry you drive behind has got signs on it saying, you know, we're, we're recruiting, phone this number sort of thing. Um, and so the, the sort of job market has changed um, Sort of massively in terms of as you say there's, there's many more um uh, uh jobs than than sort of the people but um also it's the, the types of jobs and, and almost that people have shifted their attitude and needs and that's having an impact as well is that similar over there oh absolutely you know our truck we have, we have uh plenty of empty trucks and no truck drivers a lot of the yeah. restaurants that, yeah. that i would frequent have reduced their hours because they don't have wait staff or kitchen help to, to support mm-hmm. the demand of, of you know Uber Eats and, and uh, other delivery door dashes. They, you know, mm-hmm. A lot more people are eating from home because they can't really go out to eat. And so it's really created this, this real juxtaposition that I think you know, if, for those employers who really become the employer of choice and they recognize and can market what makes them great, people will come there. It's a, it's a matter of recognizing and realizing that the way we did recruiting, maybe coming out of the recession here in America, 2009, 2010, 2011, where it was controlled by the company, now the pendulum has shifted and that, that control is in the hand of the employee. Yes, yeah. So what sort of things can organizations do? Because, you know, I haven't been in the HR world for a long time in terms of you know, doing the job, but, you know, we were always trying to be an employer of choice you know, years and years ago, um, and whether you've got full employment or not, you say you are. <laughs> um, sure. But, but that doesn't always sort of translate into what you're actually doing. Clearly, it's absolutely vital and it, that it does now. What sort of things can employers be doing to become those employers of choice? Oh, that's a great question. I was just at a client offsite last week where I'm working with the CEO, and he brought me in that they were missing their, their projections and they have, you know, the great product in there in the manufacturing base. They have a patent, and they're just – falling way behind because they don't understand that being the employer of choice helps them become a, helps them become a differentiator. And I was trying to explain mm-hmm. to him, and I think he finally got it, is the number one way a company can be an employer of choice is creating psychological safety in the work environment. That's allowing an employee to feel safe. Then they can build mm-hmm. trust within the organization, trust within their leadership team. Then they can pivot into being seen, heard, known, and accepted. 
Only then can you really be an employer of choice because the employee then feels emotionally invested in the organization. In addition mm-hmm. to that, if, if you really focus on, on building that out, you take a look at what's imp- what matters more to the employee, not necessarily what matters most to the company. And uh, the simplest way to put it for, for companies that maybe are a little bit larger is don't focus as much on the shareholders and the owners of the company, but the stakeholders in the company, which are the, the employees who are getting things done for you. And again, for me, the first place I always recommend they start is creating a psychologically safe working environment, helping people be heard, known, and accepted. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that's something that's even more important at the current time, um, probably a physically safe work environment as well as a psychologically safe yeah, work well, environment. Uh, yes, uh, yes, and. <laughs> yeah. And we've got, you know, all sorts of um, differences, you know, organizations saying everyone's got to come back to the office and, you know, no, no one has to at all and, and all, all the sort of um, examples in between. And I guess that, you know, is a big part of, of it as well, which uh, has never really been you know, I'm like, okay, we, we follow health and safety and everything else, but this is like a really different safety sort of issue in terms of, you know, all aspects, isn't it? It really is. These are sometimes for, for a lot of, you know, older companies or more mature companies or more mature HR hiring managers, these are sometimes unprecedented times. And if mm. you've got employees who, you know, I have a friend of mine, he just, he just went, his company just went public. And he was, we were talk, had a really long conversation about the struggle he has, and he's in his mid-60s. Of the, he doesn't see his team altogether anymore because so many people are now working from home. And he yeah. feels that, that you know, he, has the, he has the falsehood in his mind that if he sees you know, Bob or Joanne or Sue sitting at their desk, that they're working. Well, this data mm-hmm. support that. the data supports that if somebody in, the, in an office or a, a physical location is probably working five to six hours and they're getting paid for eight. But what you've mm. noticed with, with a lot of employees, especially the millennials, if you let them work from home and you create an environment, not where they're measured by the hours they put in, but by the work product they create, it's amazing how much more productivity you get out of them because they, the employee feels in charge of their time. If they have a child care issue, they can stop their work and go take care of their children. They want to stop mm-hmm. and, and go through a load of laundry in or change out the dishwasher and come back to work. You're, they're actually more engaged with the work because they're in control of their time versus working for the man. And millennials yeah. are classically known for that, that they want to have a, more control over their flexibility and freedom versus their income. And, and it, I was explaining this to my buddy. I'm like, you got you to gotta understand they don't see the world of work the way you saw the world of work. It doesn't mean that they see it wrong. They just see it differently. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how can people do that? What, what does that mean in terms of what organizations do? Because I was talking to a colleague today, and she started working somewhere new where they, on the one hand, are saying it's, it's all about flexibility and trust. And on the other hand, they have to log in in the morning and log out in the, in the evening um, to sort of prove that they're available sort of thing and where they are and all that sort of thing. So those two things don't match. Um, and, you know, I, I've used my husband as an example a lot. His, I think his company are actually quite flexible with him. He works from home permanently now. They closed their offices at the beginning of the pandemic and they're not going to reopen. But I see he has a sort of almost a psychological contract that says he's got to do things in a certain way that I don't think they're telling him that, but he just thinks he does. So he, you know, he you know, starts at the, the time he's supposed to start and his lunch is very structured and you know, he can't sort of finish a few minutes early because he thinks he'll get in trouble and all that sort of stuff. And I don't think that's what they're like, but that's what he thinks. So for organizations, how, what, how do they, 
explicitly tell people, but also then back that up with their behaviours so that they are having people work flexibly and they are sort of fitting in with the millennial perspective um, without giving the either mixed messages or, you know, um, well, yeah, or saying one thing and, and doing another in effect. So going back to our enabler and organisation integrity, having that sort of say-do gap. You know, we say this, but actually what we do is different. What what, what can they do to make it work? Oh, well, first of all, I've never heard it called the say-and-do gap, so I'm totally stealing that. I'm just going to let you know that right now. I love that phrase. It makes a ton of sense. Um, so I, I use my son as the example. My son is a CPA. He's in his early 30s, and he's he's recently switched jobs because he found an employer that's going to measure him as a CPA who creates tax returns, financial reports, client interactions, measure him on the quality of the work he does and the volume of work he produces, not when he produces it. He's a, he's yeah. a younger manager and, and she's very attuned to you work, work when you want to work. And my son is a, you know, how, what is the biorhythm of that human being? What is the biorhythm of mm -hmm. that employee? And his biorhythm is he's always been a night owl. So they said, as mm -hmm. long as you meet the, the, so it becomes a deadline driven decision based upon data, not in a measure of number of hours worked, unless it's a team meeting or a client visit, you need to go, you know, be at it three o'clock on a Wednesday. And, yeah. and he, you know, he understands it. So what they've done is done a great job upfront of creating rules of engagement. Then they've created mm -hmm. to those rules of engagements, measurables, KPIs, key performance indicators, as well as results driven decisions or results driven metrics that allow for an understanding from both the employee's perspective as well as from the, the manager's perspective of what success looks like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, companies have been trying to set measures and KPIs and everything else, you know, forever, <laughs> but it becomes so important now. And, Often that's the issue, isn't it? That, that it's easier to measure having someone sat at their desk for eight hours than it is to measure that output. For sure. And, and in addition to what, what you've done is I think you've really focused on what matters most. What matters most is the work done, not the power and control being exerted upon mm -hmm. an employee. Now, granted, granted, this can't mm -hmm. happen with every single job out there. I understand that. I've got clients who do manufacturing. The employee needs to be at the welding station or at the machine running the part. That, that is the way of that world. Um, but what yeah. those companies are starting to learn is, you know what, you can get a robot to show up and basically do a lot of that work. So those people are going to become mm -hmm. displaced eventually over time as well. And then you take a look at a company like Amazon. We've got a big distribution center here in my hometown, and the people actually end up working for the robots. The robots control things. So the world of work is completely changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, at the beginning of the sort of pandemic, we were, um, you know, smiling that uh, we'd been talking about the future of work for the last however many years, and all of a sudden, the future of work was now here. <laughs> and we uh, for sure. Predicted, <laughs> predicted or planned for it at all. <laughs> well, and, and it, you know, and I would challenge anybody who's in a hiring position to also remember, this is my belief, that people regardless of what they're doing, if we stage an environment correctly where they get the intrinsic reward of a job well done, you know, I've got friends of mine who are in construction. They love, you know, doing a brand new project that's on a slab where they put up a wall and then they put up the roof and then they put, they, they can literally see this, this space was empty 90 days ago. Now there's a home for a family here and they get an intrinsic psychological spike of chemicals in their brain from a good a job well done. We, we mm -hmm. have to remember that 
I believe, you know, there's all this nonsense out there. You know, people want to be lazy and people want handouts. And I'm sure there's a part of the population that does believe that. But I also think we have to honor the large piece of the population, the people who actually get intrinsic joy from work well done. And it's up to the employer and up to the hiring manager and up to the leaders to make sure that environment occurs. Mm, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned in your book, which uh, is from Suck to Success, um, your model of hiring for DNA, not for resume. Tell us more about what that means. Well, thank you for asking. Um, it's the, it, was a key differ, it was a key differentiator when I was turning my business around. I mean, when, when I was you know, 10 years into my entrepreneurial journey, I was $600,000 in debt on a $2 million run rate, and my company was completely upside down, and I had the wrong employees. Something had to give. And I'd been only hiring people who had been with HR companies recruiting companies, HR backgrounds, because I had a recruiting and staffing business. Well, we pivoted yeah. off of that as we transitioned out of those employees, and we started looking for what we call transferable skill sets. And that, so I wanted uh-huh. to know the transferable skill set of the employee. I also wanted to know if they believe in the core values of me as a leader, as well as the organization, and I could teach them to become a good recruiter. So that, that's yeah. really for us. It's like identify the transferable skill sets, take a look at what, and if, if, an interview to your core values, and then if necessary, especially for being a recruiter, we then taught them. Mm-hmm. And, and how would you sort of persuade people who, who worry that that um, is too hard, it takes too long, um, it makes you too vulnerable because you've got people without the relevant experience and all that sort of thing? Well, I, I think you take a look at, why is relevant experience so important? You know, mm-hmm. we used, when we had a recruiting firm, we would have clients throw us arbitrary information. Hey, Todd, I need to get a machinist with five years of experience. And I said, well, great. So in those five years, what skill sets do you want them to have? Well, you just got to have mm-hmm. five years of experience. Well, I'm not really sure how I can measure that because that's kind of a subjective number. And then I would take it into things like athletics. So in America, you know, we were kind of kidding about this earlier. My favorite sport is baseball. And the, the best baseball player of the last 10 years is a guy named Mike Trout. And I would rather have Mike Trout with his five years experience at 25 than some guy who'd play in for 12 years who's a, you know, a bench sitter. He's got more experience, but he's not a better player. Meaning if someone's just got more experience, yeah. that doesn't make them a better employee. We have to take a look at how, what do we want in those five years and can we measure that out? So And then can we put them – into tests such as culture indexes to see how they're going to fit the organization. How do these problems solve? Can we give them a working interview in an environment where we can actually take a look at them and the work they produce? You know, a lot of manufacturing mm-hmm. companies that I used to staff for would have somebody come in on a Saturday, put parts on a machine and run them and program the machines and show it to the plant manager, the, the shift lead manager, so that they were able to actually measure what work product they produced. And, and once we got them taking a look at really the, let's look at the individual for the individual skills they bring, not just the number of years on the resume where maybe they really weren't that good at it anyways. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I think I've um, shared on the podcast before I um, many years ago worked for Staples when they first came to the UK, uh, the office superstore. And um, we recruited for uh, our four values, which were, um, if I can remember, work ethic, flexibility, customer focus, and, Oh, I can't remember the last one. But anyway, <laughs> the, four of them anyway. And um, and and then taught the skill. And I suppose you could argue that in you know retail, it's probably easier to, to 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 do that without worrying about previous experience and so on. But I still, you know, I had an example I remember where we used to say, um, 
that the answer to a customer was yes. You just had to work out how you were going to get there, you know, once mm-hmm. you said yes. And I remember overhearing somebody at a store opening who'd been to all the training and everything else, and the, the customer said, oh, um, do you have a toilet? And they said, oh, sorry, we don't have customer toilets. And I overheard them and went, went over and said, no, it's not a problem. You can take them to the toilet. You just need to, you know, take them through the warehouse and, you know, wait for them to come back so you can sort of escort them back out again. So I then went to talk to the girl afterwards and said, why did you say no? You know, remember what we said about the answer is yes. And she said, oh, because when I worked for my previous company, we weren't allowed to let them use the staff toilets. Um, and it, it, and that was a really small example that, that reminded me how ingrained people um, people's experiences are. So even though you've got the sort of ethics, so she was really, you know, good at focusing on the customer, but she she bought in baggage from another company. So it sort of, for me, was an example that it works the other way as well. You can say, well, they come in with no experience and you have to teach them. Actually, people come in with experience and you might still have to teach them because they, they might have the wrong experience sort of thing. Exactly. And you get the, are you teaching them your culture, your values? Well, if you've already, if that person's already has them in, in, in a space, then sometimes you're just going to have to unteach them some of the bad habits or some of the negatives they've learned along the way. <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah, interesting. Um, and but so what about um, where you do need experience? So how do you find those people, the right people, when you need the experience as well? So I don't know, they're a doctor, for example. You're not going to say, come in with the right attitude and we'll teach you how to operate. Oh, for sure. That's yeah, that's a great example. So so say you're you have to hire a doctor. Well, if you if you assume there's a baseline, let's assume there's a baseline of medical proficiency within anybody who's a doctor with a medical degree, et cetera. You kind of got a baseline understanding. You can still interview to the culture of the company. You can still interview to the core values of the company once you establish the baseline. Now, like my son just went through this as a CPA. You know, he's a CPA. He's, a, he's accredited and certified. He has a degree, et cetera. But then when the company really started interviewing for him for fit, not just skill set, but culture fit. It, it changed everything. It got him excited about the company because as the company was selling him, not him selling himself on the job, he got even more excited. So again, mm-hmm. in a candidate-driven marketplace, once you can establish a baseline of skill set, again, we go, we, you can do that for doctors, CPAs, you can do that for truck drivers. You know, do, you have, do you have a CDL license? Is it an A or B? Do you have an air brake endorsement or not? What do you have? We've established the criteria. Then from that point forward, we interview against the culture, we interview against the core values, and we want to make sure they're a good fit for our organization because they, employees are always our frontline people and are, are, they are the differentiator in any company, in any, any industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about millennials sort of earlier on and how they're sort of looking for different things and a bit more um, sort of flexibility how are things changing within the workforce now and will continue to change because we've also gone through a period of having is it five generations i can't can't remember um but you know people at both ends of the spectrum because people have stayed in work longer i suspect that's changing now with the changes that have happened in the last sort of couple of years um but what what should organizations be doing how should they be shifting well, I think first thing, like you're saying, is let's have awareness that it's actually happening. Sometimes places, mm-hmm. I kid you not, are just in denial. You have multi-generational. And then take into account, if you're a family-run company, you're multi-generational with grandma working there and your uncle and your cousin and your brother and your mom. Oh, my gosh. Those are my favorite clients to work with because they're usually really messed up. And I can go in and make a lot of difference as a coach, uh, getting people in the right lanes, doing the right things the right way. Mm-hmm. It, it's, first of all, we have to recognize it. And secondarily, there's a thing I call otherness. The way someone who's um, 
you know, let's say generation, you know, baby boomer versus a millennial. There's an otherness in a space between them. And neither one of them is right or wrong. They just are the way they are. Some of their thoughts, quote unquote, might be outdated. But once we have someone come in and facilitate a conversation around otherness and allowing them to, to see the world through the lens of the other party. I use a product called colorcode.com. It's free. And when I, when I give that to my clients and I see that, you know, John, who's a, a baby boomer, is a red, and Kyle, who's a millennial, is a yellow, and we deconstruct how they see the world. And in the process of how they see the world, we see that there really is no right or wrong. It's just a different perspective. Then we can create a space between yeah. the otherness so that they are able to see the world through the lens of the other party and they will actually work better together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good to hear. So let's think again about some of the things that uh, employers should be doing. As I said, we've for years been wanting to be employers of choice, but um, uh, it doesn't always happen. <laughs> but vital, as we've said, well, say, I don't know, three, three practical steps. We've got five minutes left, three practical steps that uh, you will be telling organizations they need to take now. Oh, to be an employer of choice. So the first yeah. thing I would suggest we do is we recognize that the world is the world of work has changed. So if you want to become an employer of choice, create a psychologically safe work environment. So that's kind of a, to me, that's yeah. a hallmark. That's a baseline. Number two is mm-hmm. where possible, if you can offer uh, flexibility and freedom around work schedule, for example, you may not, you know, you may need someone who's got to be there a lot of the time, but not all the time. Can you give them, you know, three days in the office, two days out of the office? Again, but measure them and hold them accountable to a number, not to the hours. That's a big piece of it. And the last thing, especially with millennials, is they want to be, they want to have a voice in the decisions. A lot of guys get tripped up about this. They want to have a voice in the decision because if you're going to make a big change, they want you to hear them. They recognize and realize that, believe it or not, that they don't have the final say. But if you're going to make a policy change, or you're going to make a shift in hours or a shift in benefits, you know, have an open team meeting about that because sometimes we operate ourselves as leaders in a vacuum and we don't recognize that the ripple decisions and the ripple effects we make permeate through the organization and impact our frontline workers. And sometimes we, we miss sometimes what is very obvious to them because it's not very obvious to us. Mm-hmm. Okay. I love those three. How do we then make sure that um, we're seen as an employer of choice because we do that? Because that we could do and our employees could see and think that we're great. So how do we get that out there to attract people? You know, the best, the best recruiting source is your current workforce. If you treat your current workforce wonderfully, start offering them a $500 to $2,000 bonus for referring their friends. Because if you got, you know, if I think Joe's a great employee and I say to you, hey, we've got another opening in another department. I need, a, I need, like, I need Joe 2.0. Do you have any friends who are mm-hmm. like you? You're like, oh my gosh, yeah. And, you know, and for the, for the first 30 days, I'll give you 500 bucks. The second 30 days, I'll give you 1,000 bucks. And the last 30 days, I'll give you another 500 bucks. So you'll get $2,000 for referring your buddy. You're going to be then also tied in psychologically to their success. Because, you know, I, and I say this a lot to employers, your best employees are key because they're either going to leave because of the, their boss they work for. That's the number one reason why people quit their job, not for, money, for their boss. But they also are your greatest recruiting source for your next great employee because if they love it there, they're going to want to tell their friends there because they look like a hero to their friends. They look like somebody that they can, their friends can depend upon for the next great opportunity. Mm-hmm. And what else? So the, the, um, referral programs sound like a good idea. Some companies won't go anywhere near those. 
<laughs> what else, um, as a recruiter, could you see as being um, really effective in getting people on the basis that, as we've said, it's so important that people show how attractive they are now to get those recruits? Well, ultimately, the, we have to remember, I guess, especially in a candidate centered marketplace we have to focus on what's in it for them in the yeah. interview you want you know i would think about if i'm going to hire joe for her first day in the interview over the course of my time with you in the room i want to find out from you what's important to you but i also want you to feel like i've i've really listened in an active listening model to absorb what you're saying and one way mm-hmm. to do that that i found really well is what's your first day on in my company when you show up at your desk what's waiting for you is there a welcome basket that has all of your favorite snacks in it? Because we start shooting the breeze about what we like and what we don't like, and maybe your favorite bottle of wine. Yeah. If you want to take it a step further, send that same gift basket to your house with your spouse's favorite beverages, your spouse's favorite snacks. Then you, what mm-hmm. you've done is you, you've created a unification at home that, oh my gosh, this company cares about us as, a, as people, cares about me as an employee, cares about my spouse and significant other, so that when I need a favor from you and I need you to work late or go on a travel trip, it's going to be a whole lot easier at home because I've, mm-hmm. we've seen everybody versus just letting it twist in the wind and just guesstimating. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you. I love that as a, as a, as a final tip that um mm, i can see how that would that would work um for for new people so thank you so much todd it's been great interviewing you it's gone by rather quickly hasn't it <laughs> it's been a blast it's totally been fun thanks so much for having me on the show lovely thank you and just to let you know next week andy gorham's back and he's talking with daria flanagan who's well-being engagement manager at eon uk and they're talking um as world's mental health day approaches about the importance of well-being conversations to uh, create an authentic and caring workplace. So uh, Andy will be with you next week. So thanks for joining us. Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work.